Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. This previously recorded episode of Back from the Borderline may contain mentions of social links or initiatives I took part in that are no longer active or relevant. To follow the podcast on Instagram, connect with me directly, or support the work I'm doing, visit backfromtheborderline.com. Welcome back to the podcast, dear listener. Today's episode is all about intimacy. Intimacy is such a complex concept, and it can be understood differently by each individual and by cultures too. Intimacy is complicated to begin with, so if you add in borderline personality disorder, I'm sure you can understand how much more complicated it gets. In my opinion, some people with BPD may have no issues with intimacy until it reaches a certain level, then it may cause them to retreat for different reasons. Other people with BPD may have issues with all levels of intimacy and fear getting close to anyone at all. And there may also be some who become too intimate with people too soon due to a lack of boundaries, and this tends to bite them on the ass later on. That last one was me. I got bit in the ass by that one a lot. So if this sounds like something you want to learn more about, keep listening to the end of the episode because we're going in deep on this subject. Let's go. You have entered back from the borderline, where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed. I'm your host, Molly. I spent most of my life numbing the pain and emptiness inside me, unaware that my self-sabotaging behaviors and thoughts were destroying my ability to connect with myself and other people. One day, I decided I was sick enough of my own bullshit to hear life calling, telling me it was time for a change, and I decided to answer that call. On this podcast, we'll learn that when we see ourselves as the hero of our own journey, it gives us the best chance at finding our inner truth and integrity. Together, We'll learn to hold complex feelings, expand our consciousness and self-awareness while making meaning of our suffering. Are you ready to find out who you are underneath the weight of everything that's been keeping you stuck? If the answer is yes, follow me down the rabbit hole of psychological and spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. And with that, let's dive straight in to the episode. I thought a great way to open this podcast episode about intimacy was a Quora, Quora. It's that question and answer platform online where a bunch of people just write up a question and then anyone and everyone with a profile can write an answer back. And I found this question, why are people with BPD so afraid of real intimacy? And there was an answer from a woman named Laura Hurt. Her Cura profile said that she had BPD, had in the past tense, and quote, managed to get out of it in 1996. And her answer to this question was so poignant and so spot on and resonated with me so much that I wanted to share it with you. So I'll kick things off by reading Laura's answer to the question, why are people with BPD so afraid of real intimacy? One of the issues of borderline is an attachment disorder. An attachment disorder develops when a child is raised in circumstances that makes the child doubt that it is loved. Some children, however, not only doubt that they're loved, they feel that they know they're not loved and they feel that that's their fault. So they must be horrible in some way. And what they do is they hide that. They lock away their true self because that true self must be horrible and will definitely lead to losing love. 
So from that moment on, they try to be awesome in every way and they keep their true self hidden so that nobody will discover that they're actually horrible and leave them. This locking away of the true self happens at a very young age. The result is that the borderline doesn't know that this happened at all. And when he becomes aware of himself, this has already been in effect for so long. The true self is hidden so far away that the borderline is not even aware that it's hidden, let alone where. And it's been done before he became aware, so the borderline doesn't know this part of themselves is missing. He thinks that the way he is is completely normal. The true self is very, very scared. He's hidden deep inside and is always on his guard. He can't risk discovery because then it will come out that he's horrible and everyone will leave him. And that's what happens. The moment someone gets too close, the true self feels that the other is on the verge of discovering him and that cannot be allowed. And he'll do everything and anything to keep that from happening. Real intimacy therefore feels impossible because that would mean letting go of your guard and that simply won't happen. It's not a choice. The choice was made a long, long time ago And the person with BPD is just trying to live without his true self and not even knowing he's missing his true self. He's as helpless as the people around him to fix this because he doesn't even know what to fix. I found this answer to be so profound and so sad, but also so accurate. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel here. Speaking from experience, the vast majority of difficulties when it comes to intimacy occur before we are aware of this true self, this damaged and sad inner child within us, those of us with BPD, this damaged true self that believes we truly are horrible. The worst of this is before we are aware that we have BPD. Once we become aware, we shine a light on that true self, that little child within us that believes we're horrible. And for the first time, we realize we aren't really horrible. We just have patterns and behaviors that we learned when we were a child that we need to unlearn so that we can develop true intimate relationships with ourselves and others. So there is no agreement in psychological theory or research, surprisingly, as to what intimacy is. Most theorists and researchers agree that intimacy is an essential aspect of many interpersonal relationships. Nevertheless, considerable variability exists in conceptualizations of intimacy. Some theorists have defined intimacy as a quality of interactions between persons, Individuals emit reciprocal behaviors that are designed to maintain a comfortable lever- <laughs> level of closeness. Another model of intimacy from 1988 integrates these multiple perspectives by describing intimacy as the product of a transactional, interpersonal process in which self-disclosure and partner responsiveness are key components. In this view, Intimacy develops through a dynamic process whereby an individual discloses personal information, thoughts, and feelings to a partner, and then receives a response from the partner and interprets that response as either understanding, validating, or caring. Everyday English language uses of the term intimacy vary with it being understood differently according to cultural and historical frames of reference. Regardless of these, however, intimacy refers to the quality of close connection between people and the process of building this quality. Although there may be no universal definition for intimacy, intimate relationships are a type of personal relationships that are subjectively experienced and may also be socially reorganized as close. Some people's view of intimacy is only in the sense of sexual relationships, But to me, this is a narrow view. Intimacy to me is best understood from a sociological perspective. The quality of closeness that is indicated by intimacy can be emotional and cognitive with subjective experiences, including a feeling of mutual love, being of like mind and special to each other. Closeness may also be physical, bodily intimacy, 
although an intimate relationship need not be sexual and both bodily and sexual contact can occur without intimacy. This is a broader definition than one which limits intimacy to deep knowing of the other person, rather than placing particular emphasis on knowing. Knowledge is just one of a number of practices that may create intimacy. Now, I know this is a lot of jargon, a lot of psychological text that I'm reading out to you, but as you know, I like to get nerdy when we start to really set the stage for what we're about to discuss. What all of these different resources are trying to tell us is that intimacy is complicated and it's not just about sex. We can have sex with someone without any shred of intimacy as involved. And if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you know that we can use sex as a form of self-harm. And for those of us with borderline personality disorder, if we are intimate sexually with a lot of people without really getting to know them, this is really harmful and really, really bad for our recovery process. The point I'm trying to make is that there are levels to intimacy. And those of us with BPD sometimes struggle to understand that intimacy needs to be built over time. It's not just something that needs automatically given. At my lowest level of functioning with my BPD, I was too intimate too soon with people, and this would often scare people off. And granted, once I reached a certain level of intimacy with some people, I would develop fear that my openness was a vulnerability that could be used against me, and quite often it was. Why is intimacy important? Intimacy is important because we are social creatures. We thrive on our close personal relationships with other people. And as I said before, when the word intimacy is spoken, immediately what comes to mind are romantic relationships. But intimacy occurs in our friendships, our relationship with our parents, and even our siblings. There are also different types of intimacy. And there are four types to be exact. Let's go through those different types. First, there is experiential intimacy. This is when people bond during leisure activities. People may sync up their actions in teamwork or find themselves acting in unison. So an example of experiential intimacy is when a father and son work together to build a model train developing a rhythm in their teamwork. The next type of intimacy is emotional intimacy. This is when people feel safe sharing their feelings with each other, even the uncomfortable feelings. So an example of emotional intimacy would be a woman confiding in her sister about her body image issues. She trusts her sibling to offer comfort rather than using her insecurities against her. The next type of intimacy is intellectual intimacy. This is when people feel comfortable sharing ideas and opinions, even when they disagree. So an example of that would be two friends debating the meaning of life. They enjoy hearing each other's opinions and don't feel the need to win the argument. They're just discussing this to learn more about each other and become closer to one another. The last type of intimacy is sexual intimacy. This is when people engage in sensual or sexual activities. When people use the word intimacy, they're often referring to this type. So an example of that, two lovers engage in foreplay, knowing how each other prefers to be touched. This is a consensual act, and because they both want to please one another, they're able to develop mutual and healthy sexual intimacy. Now, intimacy in a romantic relationship is usually something that's built over time. New relationships might have moments of intimacy, but building long-term intimacy is a gradual process that requires patience and communication. Many people judge the quality of their relationships based on the depth of intimacy and the degree to which they feel close to their partners. As I was doing my research for this episode, I realized that 
I didn't know there was different types of intimacy when I was growing up. (laughs) When I heard the word, let's be intimate, (laughs) my mind immediately just went to sex. And I think if we were taught growing up these the importance of these different types of intimacy and how intimacy is something that needs to be built over time and that people need to earn, we might have a lot less unhealthy people out there that are struggling with their mental health and struggling with intimacy. So when we're talking about intimacy, something that comes up is having a fear of intimacy. And I think a lot of us with BPD struggle quite a bit with that fear, even if we're not honest with ourselves about it or if we're unaware of it. I was most certainly unaware. If you would have asked me pre-diagnosis, Molly, are you afraid of intimacy? I would have just said no, because again, awareness is key. So what is a fear of intimacy? So intimacy helps make us feel more loved and less alone. But intimacy also requires a great deal of trust and vulnerability. And a lot of us with BPD find this very frightening. And many people struggle with intimacy and fear of intimacy is really common in therapy, even outside of borderline personality disorder. And We fear intimacy for a variety of reasons. And here are some of the most common causes. The first of these is abandonment issues. People with BPD may fear that once we become attached to someone, that they will leave us. The second is a fear of rejection. We might worry that once we reveal any flaws or imperfections or that damaged, horrible inner child as we discussed at the beginning, that the other person will no longer want to be with us. So many of us feel like we're unworthy of our partner's love. Another intimacy issue is control issues. We may fear losing our independence as we become emotionally connected to others. And lastly, past abuse. History of child abuse, especially sexual abuse, may make it very, very difficult for us to trust others. When we're seeking professional help for intimacy issues, we may be asked to take the fear of intimacy scale. This scale measures how much you fear emotional intimacy in a romantic context. It asks questions like, if you agree or disagree with statements like, I would probably feel nervous showing my partner strong feelings of affection. And Research has linked a high FIS score to increased loneliness. There are many places online that you can take the fear of intimacy scale, and I will link to that in the show notes. So let's dive more deeply into BPD's impact on intimacy. In the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is called the DSM-5, This is the resource mental health professionals refer to in the United States um, to make a mental health diagnosis. And symptoms of BPD include intense, unstable, and conflicted personal relationships. So in essence, people with BPD are often terrified that others will leave them. However, they can also shift suddenly to feeling smothered and fearful of intimacy which leads them to withdraw from relationships. This result is a constant back and forth between demands for love and attention and then sudden withdrawal and isolation. I don't know if this sounds familiar to you, but this is something that I really struggled with and I used to laugh about it because I used to get so obsessed with people and then they would do something to annoy me or say something weird and I would get what I would res, um, refer to my friends as, as the ick. <laughs> and so I would laugh about it and say, oh, I got the ick with that guy. And my friend would say, wait, you were just obsessed with him last week. I'm like, yeah, I got the ick now. I'm done. And 
I used to laugh about it. And quite frankly, I laughed off a lot of my BPD symptoms when inside I was really struggling, but it was a way to make me kind of feel normal and feel like the comedic relief of my friends. Um, but that shift between being really obsessed with someone and then they do something rather meaningless and then you're just put off of them, that is a sure sign that you have some serious intimacy issues. Another BPD symptom that particularly impacts relationships is called abandonment sensitivity. This can lead to those of us with BPD to be constantly watching for signs that someone might leave them and then interpret even a minor event that a sign that abandonment is imminent. The emotions may result in frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, such as pleading, public scenes, and even physically preventing the other person from leaving. I can't tell you how many examples I have of this in my own life. My BPD has caused me to even perceive my partner's minor change in facial expression that they hate me. I have stormed out of the house during BPD rages and then come back in and my partner may decide to go leave and I would like cling on to the car door as they were trying to drive away to just get some space. So it is just so emotionally painful. And then after that happens, I could say, fuck off, leave, just go. And then come back in the house and they would go, right? (laughs) Our partner says, okay, I will go, I'm going. And then you come back in and immediately you're flooded with the shame and the abandonment feeling. For those of you who are loved ones of people with BPD out there and have experienced this, I know how frustrating this must be for you, but it's something really important to know is that inside that person with BPD, they are also going through hell inside. So this is why I'm making this episode is in hopes that partners can listen to this together and have a deeper understanding of what's going on behind these like maddening seeming behaviors. It is so, so painful for the person with BPD and so, so confusing for the loved ones. Another common complaint of loved ones in borderline relationships is lying. While lying and deception are not part of the formal diagnostic criteria for BPD, many loved ones say lying is one of their biggest concerns. This can be because BPD causes people to see things very differently than others. I struggled so much with being honest I would lie really impulsively about such tiny little things and then my partner would catch me in those lies and those little lies would damage the trust so much. Quite often we'll lie about small things just because we think that lying will keep you close to us and we don't want you to discover something that we may perceive is super shameful. And when you find out about What we lie about, you may say, but that wasn't a big deal. The lie is actually much worse. Just know that sometimes these lies, whether they're white lies or whether they're serious lies, this is the person with BPD's frantic attempts at trying to prevent you from thinking they're a terrible person. So if you have BPD, you really need to be truthful all the time, no matter what. Those little lies make it so hard for the people that you're with to trust you. And part of my recovery has been developing a strong moral compass. And if you listen to From Borderline to Beautiful, which is another incredible podcast um, for borderline personality disorder, Rose Skeeters, the host of that podcast, does an incredible series on developing our moral compass. And this essentially means decide what matters to you. And for me, one of my values is honesty and integrity. And that means being honest about everything. So if you are a loved one with someone with BPD, know that sometimes this lying, it does not come from a malicious place. Understand why they're doing it. And for people with BPD, 
understand how damaging this behavior can be. You don't have to feel ashamed. Everyone makes mistakes, but it is so much more honorable when you admit it. Think about politicians. When you find out that they lied, how disgusting does that feel? When someone that you put your trust in to run your country or when you find out your boss lied, it throws your whole trust of your country or your organization off. Your partner or your parent or your sibling, um, they feel the same way. So hold yourself to a really high standard. For me, when a politician comes out and says, you know what? I fucked up. I'm a human. I'm going to be honorable and lead by example and say, I told a lie. I have so much more respect for people that come out and just tell me the truth. So make a pact with yourself today. If you have BPD to cut lying, nip it in the bud, no more. And for the people, the loved ones of those with BPD, please have a deep understanding that lying can be a problem, but it is something that we are trying to frantically protect that inner child that really thinks that we are just a horrible fucked up person. And we are trying so hard to build up this identity of someone that is perfect. And so you don't see that broken inner child inside of us. So if you are someone that's a partner, a loved one of someone with BPD listening to this podcast, instead of beating someone up about their lie, your person in your life with BPD, maybe tell them, just say, I would, I would respect so much more if you just tell me the truth, no matter what, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not, I'm not perfect either. I've lied, but next time, just tell me the truth. I know you're doing this out of a place of hurt, but if this continues, it's going to be really difficult for me to trust you. That is a way that we can start coming together and healing these broken bonds and this damaged intimacy from lies with people with BPD. So impulsive sexuality is another classic symptom of BPD, and many people with BPD struggle with issues of sexuality, and also a large percentage of people with BPD experienced childhood sexual abuse, which can make sex even more complicated. I did another episode about BPD and sexuality that I would highly recommend you go listen to. And I also plan on digging way deeper into sex and BPD and impulsive sex, sex is self-harm. This is something that I could talk about all day long. If you are in the early phases of your BPD recovery, if you are just starting to wonder whether or not you have BPD, you need to pump the brakes on any sex that is impulsive with people you don't know very well. Even if you think this is just for fun, this can be really harmful and set you so far back in your recovery. You can't have sex like other people can. You just need to realize this. I had to realize this for myself. Maybe some people are emotionally healthy enough to handle sex with no strings attached, but for people with BPD, this is not possible. I will die on this this cross. I, I don't care if you disagree with me. If you're getting annoyed at me saying this, I would consider why you might be triggered by this because I think there's something you need to look at there. Those of us who are in BPD recovery, sex should only be had once intimacy is earned over a period of time so that you can make sure that you trust that person, that they earn your intimacy and that you're having sex with them for the right reasons. But again, I could go on and on about this, but we'll move on. So finally, other symptoms of BPD, including impulsivity, self-harm and dissociative symptoms can also have an indirect impact on borderline relationships. So for me, you know, I had a lot of impulsivity issues. If I went out, I would tell my partner, I'm going out for drinks after work. I was not the type of person that could just have one or two drinks. If I had one or two drinks, I, if someone just asked me, all right, Molly, let's just have one more shot. I would always do it. And that led to another one and another one. 
even though I told my partner I'm just staying out for two drinks. So this is something we need to be really, really aware of is that we have a lot of trouble with those impulsive behaviors. And again, if you're early on in your recovery, be cognizant of that because that type of impulsive behavior can really impact our intimate relationships. It can harm our partner and our family's ability to trust us. Also, you know, self-harming behaviors, sex is self-harm, physical self-harm. This is, I don't even have to tell you that that's damaging on our, our intimate relationships. Dissociative symptoms. I'm, I struggle a lot with dissociation and this can even just be in small ways. So if Zaz, my partner is talking to me about something that really means something to him, quite often I can find myself losing focus when he's talking and I'll be looking off into the distance or if he's talking about something particularly triggering to me that I've done, I can kind of dissociate as well. And when we're not just fully present in the moment with our partners, it can make them really feel like we're not connecting with them. And if we have partners who are pretty passive, Zaz is, for example, they may not even tell us how much it affects them. And this develops long standing resentment over time. For me, I'm the type of person, if someone's dissociating when I'm talking, I'm like, hey, are you listening to me? Hey, hello, is anyone home? Some people that are more passive like Zaz, he will maybe clock that I'm not listening to him. And he just files that in the mental bank. Like, okay, I guess she doesn't care about what I'm saying. And that is so damaging on relationships. So if you're someone with BPD, again, be aware that that's really damaging. And if you're a loved one of someone with BPD and you experience us doing any of these behaviors, like the impulsivity, self-harm, and especially dissociation, if someone with BPD is kind of tuning out when you're talking, maybe say something like, hey, are you with me? I'm, I'm just, I'm really trying to talk to you about something and I just want to make sure that we're on the same page. Are you all right? Again, make sure you're not saying things like, are you even listening to me? That's going to trigger someone with BPD and it's going to turn into an episode and it's going to go all downhill from there. Do you see how in these reframes I'm encouraging the people with BPD and those without BPD, the loved ones of individuals with BPD to be more understanding of each other, check in with each other. And this is how we improve our intimate relationships. It's important to be aware that for those of us with BPD, if our loved ones are witnessing us engaging in impulsive behaviors like going on spending sprees or, you know, staying out until all hours or being really sexually impulsive, this can cause major stress in the family and suicidal gestures, self-harm, anything like that is terrifying for our romantic partners. And this just introduces so much stress into our relationships. But the key is not to be hard on ourselves about things that have happened in the past. This is all about deeper understanding, awareness, and the ability to move forward and develop better intimacy in the future. So what does research say about intimacy and BPD? Research has confirmed that people with BPD tend to have very stormy romantic relationships characterized by a great deal of tumult and dysfunction. No surprise there. (laughs) Is anyone fucking shocked? (laughs) So for example, one study demonstrated that women with BPD symptoms reported greater chronic relationship stress and more frequent conflict. Sometimes this research, I'm like, duh. (laughs) So also... The more severe a person's BPD symptoms are, the less satisfaction their partner reports. Also, big fat, duh. But this paints a really powerful picture because it just goes to show how important developing a deeper understanding of what healthy intimacy is because it's going to make our lives really unfulfilling and chaotic. So, Additional research has shown that BPD symptoms are associated with a greater number of romantic relationships over time and a higher incidence of unplanned pregnancies in women. I can't tell you how lucky I am 
to not have five or six kids by now. It is by the grace of God that I do not have a bunch of kids from a bunch of different people. (laughs) And I'm sure many of you out there probably feel the same way. That's why I don't judge anyone for unplanned pregnancies because so many of us are seeking connection and intimacy through sex. And that is just not it. Sex is such a small part of intimacy. So this same research also says that people with BPD also tend to have more former partners and tend to terminate more relationships in their social networks than people without personality disorders. So the research formally states that this suggests that romantic relationships with people with BPD are more likely to end in a breakup. I find this so disempowering. Sure, this may be a fact, but I'd like to add a different color to this. Quite often when we find out that we have BPD and we go looking for resources, we see really disempowering statements like this. Things like, people with BPD are incapable of true intimacy. You can't sustain a relation, healthy relationship with someone with BPD. I question that. I think there's a way to reframe this. I think people with undiagnosed, untreated people that are unaware that they have BPD, yeah, they are very, very unlikely to, to develop healthy relationships. Before I was even aware that I had BPD, my life was just a string of failed intimate partners and relationships. And I felt like the problem was me. It was just this awful cycle. But once we're aware, this stuff can change. So don't let yourself be disempowered by research like this. Research is meant to be clinical and final, but it doesn't mean that your life has to be that way. I promise you, it doesn't have to. I'm living proof. And I speak to people all day on my Instagram who have found healthy, intimate relationships with BPD. Research is there to help us become more aware, but it doesn't give us a definitive prescription for how our life is going to go. So don't lose hope. I'd like to move into talking about what it's like to be in a relationship with someone with BPD. And that means that we need to talk about what it's like to start a relationship with someone with BPD. So given all the difficulties that exist in BPD relationships, why would anyone start a relationship with someone with the disorder, right? That can be kind of the conclusion we feel. Wow, this sounds complicated. Relationships are complicated, always. First, it's important to remember that despite these intense and disruptive symptoms, people with BPD are so often good, kind, and caring individuals. Often they have many positive qualities that can make them such incredibly fantastic romantic partners. Furthermore, many people who have been in romantic relationships with someone with BPD talk about how fun, exciting, and passionate a BPD partner can be. And many people are drawn to a BPD partner precisely because people with BPD have intense emotions and a strong desire for closeness. There are so many amazing things about people with borderline personality disorder. It is not all bad. We have such an amazing capacity for love and closeness. I love cuddles. I love to be close with my partner. I love to see them happy. And as I am developing a healthy relationship with myself, I'm now finally able to see that I'm someone I would be proud to be with. I'm someone now that I think is worthy of my partner's love and that they're worthy of my love. It's such a reciprocal feeling. So when you have BPD, You don't have to feel this feeling of, wow, I'm so lucky that someone's with me, right? That's that sad inner child talking, the one that believes there's something deeply wrong with them. So when we're talking about BPD, there tends to be a typical BPD relationship cycle. And we're going to dive into this in depth now. 
Now, when we're talking about the BPD relationship cycle, we're talking about a cycle that occurs when we are unaware of our borderline personality disorder. So when I go through this, if this sounds familiar to you and it sounds like, wow, this is my life, this is because these are the cycles that keep repeating, these patterns we continue repeating in our lives. And then when we become aware of them, that is the juicy moment, folks. That's when we can go, okay, I'm aware. Now I can work on breaking these patterns, but it's important that we develop a deep understanding of the patterns so that we can develop that awareness. So let's dive into the BPD relationship cycle. Relationships for individuals with borderline personality disorder often appear to go in cycles. For example, One minute a person with BPD may be affectionate and doting, but the next minute they may feel smothered and overwhelmed, which causes them to push the other partner away that they were pulling closer only moments ago. It's easy to see how the BPD relationship cycle could be highly challenging to understand for those who are unfamiliar with how a relationship should be. Romantic relationships with someone who's been diagnosed with BPD can often be spotted with turmoil and dysfunction. However, individuals with BPD can be exceptionally caring, compassionate, and affectionate, all qualities people seek out when getting involved in close personal relationships. But despite their high levels of affection, those with BPD are highly sensitive to rejection and abandonment. Some will be heavily critical of perceived, whether accurate or not, signs that their romantic partner is unhappy or may be considering leaving them. When a person with BPD perceives a change in their partner's feelings, whether that is real or imagined, they may immediately withdraw. They can become angry and hurt over something a person without BPD would not give a second thought to. They may even become obsessive over the person that they're romantically involved with if they feel cause for concern. It's important to know that healthy relationships are possible despite a diagnosis of BPD. It's just necessary to understand the cyclical nature of the symptoms. So now let's dive in to a deep breakdown of the exact stages of the BPD relationship cycle. Again, this is the cycle before we're aware. For me, this is how I used to approach relationships before I knew that I had BPD and then shit would blow up in my face and I would go, why does this always happen to me? So stage one, during stage one of the BPD relationship cycle, a teen or young adult with BPD begins a new relationship to their family and peers. The relationship seems to move forward with a rapid intensity that isn't seen in other relationships. A first date that goes well can lead the person with BPD to view their new partner as the perfect new partner. They may begin to believe that this person is the one and that everything about their relationship is pure perfection. This sounds so familiar to me. I would go on dates with people and just immediately think that they were the bee's fucking knees. I would be planning our future kids. I would be telling everyone about them and we'd be spending every single day together. If they were just as unhealthy as me, or if they were a healthy person, I would slowly feel like they were like kind of ghosting me because I would just get so obsessed so soon. So next is stage two. So in stage two of the BPD relationship cycle, the relationship is progressing in most cases unless we've already scared them off, as I said before. But as the days go by, the person with BPD becomes hypersensitive to the smallest action or word, which may have a negative connotation. So this may be, you know, someone saying, hey, I'm busy right now. I can't talk. That could make us like lose our fucking shit or not responding to our text right away. Their partner may take longer to respond to text messages, as I said, or calls, or make plans with friends and family without first checking with their partner. These actions, small by anyone else's standards, become a source of fixation and negative emotion for the person with BPD. Their fear of abandonment and low self-esteem begin to tell them that their partner is no longer interested in them and no longer wants to be with them, regardless of whether they have genuinely shown this to be the case. 
in the mind of the person with BPD, the relationship is beginning to splinter and this becomes a source of constant and excessive concern. So I'm going to give you an example of my life. So when I first moved to LA, I met this guy and we had had like a long distance relationship before I moved to LA. I would tend to do this when I'd move places. It's like, I would already have someone in the works for me to have like a really strong connection with so that I didn't even have to spend any time alone in that city. So I did, again, I wasn't aware I was doing this, but I already was talking to this guy and I'm sure what he thought would just be kind of like, let's see how we get to know each other. Immediately, I'm just thinking we are like exclusive. So it's been two or three weeks and he kind of ended up going to a party and not texting me back. And that entire night, I just completely was losing my mind. And the next morning he texted me and was like, hey, sorry, I was at a party. Like I just didn't text. I wasn't texting anyone. I was just away from my phone. I was like, how could you not text me back? just lost it. Right. And this guy is like, Whoa. And immediately I kind of saw him like distance himself from me. And that was the beginning of the end because in his mind, he's like, this is too much too soon. And in my mind, I'm seeing him say, this is too much too soon. And I'm perceiving abandonment. So at stage two, things are starting to go downhill. This is when we move to stage three. In stage three, the individual with BPD begins to push their partner as a response to the divide they believe exists in the relationship. So the goal of pushing is to create a situation where their partner fights for the relationship and demonstrates a level of concern that removes the source of worry for the person with BPD. So the individual with BPD may use calls or texts as an opportunity for their partner to prove their dedication and willingness to be in and fight for the relationship. There were instances in my life where I've literally been screaming at a partner, like, why won't you just fight for us? You know, or texting, do you even care about me? You know, like, wow. And just waiting for the response. So the other person is having to say, no, 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 of course I care about you. When in reality, it's perfectly normal for them not to text you right back. But we tend, the people with BPD have a tendency to do this pushing at stage three. So then we move to stage four. So as a direct result of the intentional distancing, the relationship begins to fall apart. And how could it not? When we're looking at it like this, I hope you're reflecting on certain relationships in your life. If you're someone with BPD and understanding kind of why things begin to disintegrate at this stage, if you're acting this way, how could anyone want to have an intimate relationship with you, with us, right? So in stage four, individual with BPD waits on their partner for an overdramatic declaration of love and dedication, but often this doesn't come. So soon the person with BPD convinces themselves that their partner is going to leave them. So in their mind, the relationship is ending and they begin to visualize the relationship ending as a result of their own actions. It's my fault. They're leaving me. This always happens. While with their partner, who is often unaware of many of the thoughts occurring in the mind of the person with BPD, they maintain an appearance of happiness. However, in most cases, they feel as though their needs are not being met. So quite often, this is when, you know, our partner will say, are you okay? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. And in the background, we are like planning our escape. Maybe we're talking to other people. Maybe we're texting other people to try to like have a backup plan. I have done this, right? So this makes the person with BPD feel even emptier and more alone because we are not communicating our needs. So, but then our partner has no idea of knowing, but we're expecting them to read our mind. So in this stage, the individual with BPD will not communicate these feelings with their partner and our partner remains in the dark. So we move to stage five. This is where the relationship ends and our partner walks away. And sometimes the individual with BPD will attempt to salvage some elements of the broken relationship by trying to explain or justify why things went so wrong. But this last minute attempt at communicating feelings and emotions rarely allows the relationship to recover. It's a little bit too little too late. And we have put these people that we love through so many hoops. And by this time, The person with BPD has created such a distance between themselves and their partner that it just cannot be undone some of the time. So 
This is when we move into stage six. Once the relationship ends, the individual with BPD will experience a time of extreme emotional mood swings. And that's putting it mildly. I can barely explain this in words on a podcast. We can sometimes go from sobbing hysterically to being enraged at their partner for not trying hard enough in the relationship, the emptiness they feel, and their perceived validation of their abandonment, right? Our worst fears have come true. See, everyone leaves us. This just further fuels our anger in stage six. And during this time, they may lash out at friends and family with little or no um, provocation. And in some cases, this emotional instability can lead to suicidal thoughts or behaviors, self-harming. And for others, these emotions could lead to self-harming behaviors such as cutting, overdosing on medication, getting drunk, spending lots of money, um, sex as self-harm, seeking out sexual relationships, binge eating, or other risk-taking behaviors. So engaging in these behaviors, it only gives us a momentary sense of relief. So if you're caught in this cycle, please take this as a sign that these are coping mechanisms. This is not going to help you. The BPD relationship cycle is highly challenging for adults to manage and likely even more so for teens and young adults. During the teen years, emotions are often running at such a high speed and events and experiences that do not trip the emotional scales for adults can be more highly distressing for young adults and teens. For teens without BPD, romantic relationships are already challenging to navigate, as is the heartbreak associated with losing those relationships. So for teens with BPD, these challenges are heightened significantly. My teens and 20s were so turbulent and chaotic, and I repeated this BPD relationship cycle unconsciously for 15 years of my life, and it destroyed me emotionally. If this description of this cycle can help any of you listening identify that you're repeating these patterns, I would love nothing more than to save you some of your years of your life having to go through this toxic, toxic cycle. I'd like to end this episode with some ways that we can develop healthier intimacy in our lives as people with BPD and for partners. So I'm going to start with a list for my fellow people with borderline personality disorder. First, There is no way to measure love. Don't obsess over whether who loves the other person more. You might have more intensity, whereas they might have more constancy, and that's okay. Second, when times inevitably get tough, do not tell your significant other things like, well, you knew what you were going getting into when you signed up to date me, or if you can't deal with me, then just leave, or I know I'm a shitty person, so you should just go. Honestly, you don't have to throw it in their face. It's something they already know. Blatantly reminding your partner about the commitment they gave to you is disrespectful and hurtful, and it's an evasion of responsibility. Three, your feelings are precisely that, your feelings. Take ownership over them. Fixing your unhappiness is not someone else's responsibility. The next point, you're part of a team now. BPD is the enemy, not your significant other. It's not about winning. It's about resolving a problem and moving forward together. Next, if you're feeling scared and insecure, fact check instead of lashing out at your significant other. Ask instead of accuse. Remember that feelings are not facts and that your emotions are not necessarily the truth. The next tip. Along the same lines, do not bottle things up or you will end up exploding. If something's bugging you, bring it up as calmly as possible to your significant other. When in doubt, ask. I cannot stress this enough. Give your significant other an opportunity to help you help yourself. Next, do not say something you'll end up regretting just for the sake of getting even. Things that have been said cannot be unsaid. 
remember this. You need to take your time and think about what you say. Something you carelessly toss out in the heat of the moment can destroy an entire relationship and you can't put that cat back in the bag sometimes. The next tip, discuss a list of no-goes in a fight. So before, when you're in a calm state, discuss these no-goes with your partner. Like some examples are no violence, no name-calling, no sarcasm, no passive aggression, no using someone's secrets they trusted you with against them, no threatening to break up, no threats, period. Another tip is a relationship is about give and take. It's not feasible for you to get your way 100% of the time. Splitting often leads us to feel like it's all or nothing. And that if our significant other doesn't give in, that means that they don't love us. Please try to remember that your partner's happiness is equally important. That's really easy to forget when we're splitting. Another tip is to remember that your significant other is a separate human being and not an extension of yourself. They have different wants and needs, so do not superimpose your feelings and desires onto them. Next, remember to apologize and say thank you. It's very important. Remember to watch out for yourself. If your significant other doesn't take your issues seriously, uses your diagnosis against you, or is in any way abusive to you, please, 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 please don't let these things slide. Just because you have BPD doesn't mean you deserve to be treated like crap. And lastly, this is my last tip for the BPD folks in the audience. Someone who loves you can still hurt you. Their mistakes do not erase their feelings for you, but also keep in mind that love is never an excuse. You deserve to be happy. If you're not, then it's time for something to change. So now for a few tips for the loved ones of people with BPD. One, read every resource you can possibly get your hands on. I can't tell you enough, and I bang on about this on the podcast enough, but read the books, read the links I put in my show notes, read all the resources you can to healthy resources. Learn to use critical thinking. Are Is the article that you're reading or the Reddit thread you're reading written by just someone who doesn't know what they're talking about or has a really stigmatized view of BPD? Try to find healthy sources like this podcast to listen to from Borderline to Beautiful. Um, read the books that I recommend on my Instagram page. Um, seek out healthy resources and learn, learn, learn. The next tip I have for loved ones of people with BPD is to set boundaries and follow through on those boundaries. Do not make promises that you know you'll not be able to keep just for the sake of placating the person in your life with BPD, because that's worse than not making the promises at all. You will A, hurt and enrage the person with BPD even more, and B, you're going to teach them that your word is not trustworthy. So it's going to come back and bite you in the ass, I promise you. Another tip is, there will be amazing days and completely awful days. On both types of days, write a letter to yourself. And when it's time to make a decision, read both. So what this tip means is, when you have a day with your partner or loved one with BPD, write out a letter of why you love that person. And it needs to be written when you're feeling those amazing emotions. Write it. Just talk about how much you love them, all the reasons you want to be with them and have them in your life. This can go for significant others, family members, unless it's a child. You don't really have a choice if it's your child. Um, Friends. And then write another letter to yourself on a really, really bad day. Write about how you're feeling, about why you might not want to be with that person, right? And then when you find yourself on another day, a really, really bad day in the future, you can read both of those letters. It's a really, really good way to have a more balanced view of what life is like because on a good day, it's either it's easy to get swept up into that good day. And on a bad day, it's really easy to just think, fuck this, I can't do it anymore. So 
The next tip, if you start feeling like you don't even sound particularly convincing to yourself, it's probably a sign that this isn't going so well. If it sounds like you're making excuses, you probably are. Next tip, it will feel like Jekyll and Hyde, but do not split the two. Remember that the person in your life with BPD is one person. Jekyll bears the responsibility for Hyde's misdeeds, whereas Hyde isn't a complete monster because Jekyll's part of him as well. People with BPD are people, and that means that they're complex. There is never one side to anything. Look at them as they are, both the good and the bad, and choose if you want to love them anyway. Another tip, they will always be somewhat different. They love differently. They look at life differently, react to things differently. If you want to stay, you have to learn to fully accept that. Remember that people with BPD are largely reactionary. How you respond to their dysregulation has a monumental impact on what happens next. I'm going to say that again. How you respond to the person in your life with BPD when they are dysregulated has a monumental impact on what happens next. You can either worsen an episode or ensure that it doesn't get too inflammatory. Obviously, it takes two to tango, but I know all of you loved ones out there with someone with PPD, if you really look hard at yourself, yes, people with PPD, we have a tendency to push people. But a lot of times the people in our life really take that bait. So don't take the bait. Next tip. If you're staying in a relationship, remember that the goal is to always help them help themselves. You are not their therapist or their savior. You can offer support, but you cannot possibly fix them. Neither should you regard them as something that needs fixing. People are people, not projects. Again, I'm going to say that again. People are people, not projects. People with BPD's issues go really, really deep, and there is no way you can magically heal them with your love. I know you want to, but you can't. Your love can be really great and excellent support, but it's not the solution. And I'm going to end it with this tip for the loved ones of people with BPD. You literally only have one life. Do not let yourself be shackled to someone out of guilt or responsibility. That is not your job. More importantly, a relationship should never feel like a job. If you're not happy, then what the hell are you doing? I hope that these tips were helpful. And also, this all goes to say, if the person in your life or you listener with BPD, if you weren't aware of your BPD, give yourself a chance Give your partner with BPD to the loved ones out there a chance to be aware and learn to heal things, find new ways and deeper pathways of understanding, and then reflect. It is my hope that this episode was so deeply and informative for you. I know how painful it can be on both sides of the fence for people with BPD and for the people who love us. I am sending you all so much love. And that's it for today. And I can't wait to be back with each of you next week. All right, you messy, amazing, emotional, fabulous human beings doing this life thing. That is it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening because out of all the millions, billions of podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine. And that means a lot to me. And if you listen this far, I know you never want to miss a new episode. So to make sure that doesn't happen, click follow in your podcast player of choice and you will be alerted every time I drop a new one. To help me grow and help the podcast reach as many people as possible, go ahead and leave an honest rating and review. Not only that, I love to hear your feedback, so please share it with me. I read every single review and you just might hear it read out loud on the podcast. 
To connect with me directly, follow me on social media and keep up with all the new updates. You can find that all at backfromtheborderline.com. And as always, any articles, resources, or other helpful information you've heard today can be found in the description of this podcast episode. So don't forget to check out the show notes. And until we meet again, remember, life is a circle, a cycle, a process, separation, initiation, return. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.